Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is volume three of our podcast where we cover 25 of our favourite movies of any given decade. This is our 90s decade list. Uh, I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, for this, our episode of Goodfellas. I am joined, as always, by my illustrious co-host for this, this jaunt down memory lane, Matt Waters. Hi! Is this your first time being the first host? And I mean, I know I hosted all of them in volume one, but... I think I kicked off volume two, and like it's going to be a lot of you for the first few episodes. It is, which is weird, because as I said before we started recording, this is the first movie that I'll be talking about on this website that I was not born for the release of. <laughs> Some of Jerome's stuff, probably, in his 100 episodes. but Yes, yes. But, it's not but a star of the show, yeah. <laughs> but it's not like you were going to the cinema to see this at your age. At one years old. I went and saw Goodfellas. Actually, what year? Oh, yeah, I would have been one. I would have turned one. One and a half, I was. Unfortunately, not a certificate that you can bring babies to, I don't think. But... I, I'm actually not sure. I wonder if there is, like, an age that you can, like, bring your child with you. You'll probably get, like, I mean, what's a baby going to get out of? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the, it will disturb everyone else. But, like, it's not like the baby's going to be scarred for life for some for some guidos threatening each other, is it? Like... As, lo- as, as long as they're not looking at the screen, I guess. Okay, right. Yeah. So, Goodfellas. Is it a good movie? There we go, podcast done, we can cool. wrap up and go home. Sweet. Um, I'll just say it, to say it, and we can move on from it. Too long. See, Would... this is why we didn't do The Irishman. <laughs> um, like, if, I you just... thought, if you thought this was too long, then, dear Lord, The yeah. Irishman would kill you. You know, I've decided to try and be less argumentative this volume, so I'm just going to say, it's too long for me, that's fine, it's fine that I'm wrong, and we'll move along. <laughs> See, I th- the thing I think that's most interesting about this movie is that it really doesn't feel, to me, like a two and a half hour long movie. Well, yeah, because well, it's just got that sense of pace. And obviously, like, people credit and go, and, like, Scorsese wanted it to feel like the movie just gets faster and faster and faster. And obviously, like, the entire last half hour chunk of this movie is a is a coke amphetamine, like, <laughs> dream of, like, like yeah. fast cuts and helicopters and the sky and all the rest of it. Well, I mean, like, he, he famously, he wanted it to feel like a two and a half hour trailer or something like that for, for the lifestyle of a mobster and... I think, you know, it certainly is fast-paced. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> like, the first hour to 90 minutes are electric, and the ending is good as well. It's just, it kind of loses me in the, you know, the point between them getting pinched and him becoming a full-on fucking drug addict. And, and by the way, you can really tell that the same man made this and Wolf of Wall Street, can't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, there, there are a couple of things I wanted to discuss. Like, once we've got done discussing the movie, it was kind of, I wanted to discuss Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, the community episode that is obviously very heavily riffing on this. <laughs> I um, watched that last night. <laughs> that is exactly what I did immediately after I finished watching it, and The Sopranos. <laughs> are like, like, in terms of cultural legacy of this movie, yeah, but yeah, as yeah. you said, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street feels like not the same type of movie because obviously Jordan Belfort is not a criminal in the same way that the Goodfellas are. Uh... He is he's he's a white collar criminal. Like his entire thing is like fleecing people of money where rather than I mean, I guess he didn't kill them. anyone, but he sure did ruin a lot of people's lives. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I'm just saying, it's not a mobster movie in that way. It's yeah, a crime okay. movie, but not a, a mobster. Or I would argue crime. it's basically presenting two different types of crime in an identical manner, though. Like, the the, the narration, the, like... I mean, it, it's shocking that he deploys it so late in the movie, but the, like, direct-to-camera 
you know, when he gets off the stand and he's talking, like that is straight out of, was this legal? Absolutely not, you know, all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's just got so much in common with it. And like, obviously it does, like it's the same director and like, you know, how do you escape the shadow of your greatest work and all of that. But yeah, compared to his other output, I think those two are more, I mean, I haven't seen The Irishman, but those two feel so much more linked than, say, any of his other work with The Departed or, or you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's you could obviously pull parallels like Mean Streets and Casino mm. in yeah, terms yeah, of this yeah. as a, a Scorsese movie in terms of crime stuff, but Wolf Wall Street feels like it's the very DNA. He's trying to do what he did in Goodfellas, but 23 years later, it's got that same energy. It's got that feeling of like it's a two and a half hour trailer where like yeah. a three hour trailer in the case of Wolf Wall Street where it just gets more and more manic and insane as you go through this entire thing. And I, th- and I then, think giving this a good watch for the first time in, I don't know, a decade made me kind of appreciate Wolf of Wall Street a little bit more. A movie that yeah. I'm often like, because I'm one of those people that's like, this is dangerous because people like him. And it's like, well, that's them being dumbasses. I probably shouldn't put that on. <laughs> like the movie if if you watch this movie uh, if you watch that movie or this movie and think of Hank Hill or Jordan Belfort as like heroic characters like that's on you uh, I don't think yeah, the, exactly. I don't think the text is presenting them as that <laughs> no and I think that's what makes Scorsese so interesting and you you see it in things like The Sopranos where like they do entire scenes where it's like oh Goodfellas is like the perfect movie to eat pizza to and it's like they watch it and it's like oh doesn't this make our life look great and you're like <laughs> does it yeah, well, exactly. Like, and that's the thing is, you know, maybe to jump ahead a bit, but you know, like him, the the starting narration of for as long as I wanted, I always wanted to be a gangster, and like seeing the life that this kid desperately wants to be a part of. It's like you know, this is unfortunately kind of the sad little hyper masculine lifestyle that a lot of people do aspire to, and like you know, it's obviously presented in a stylish way, in the same way that. Wolf of Wall Street says, look how fucking rich these people are. But it's like, you know, if you have any shred of empathy and emotional maturity, you can see these are like empty lives and like deeply, deeply sad and, and all of that. But yeah. It's, it's just one of those fascinating things where it does feel like there isn't necessarily a moral judgment in the way that Scorsese does these movies, but there is very much a warts and all depiction of everything that's going on. Well, yeah. And, and like, you know, he fell in love with the book Wise Guys because of what he called the most authentic or honest, I can't remember the phrasing, um, portrayal of, of mob life and everything, and like the minutiae it goes into of the day-to-day. And I think that's I think that's the point of why it moves so fast. It's trying to just sort of like hurl you in at the deep end of this like incredibly elaborate, intricate world that has all these rules and, 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 and ebbs and flows. And, 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 and I think in that way, I think it is really interesting that it, that it does move so fast and is so sprawling and everything, like, you know, taking a place across, what, 25 years? <laughs> uh, like what, starts, no, it starts in 1955 and yeah. ends in 1980, but then with the, the, the post-credit, yeah, like, yeah. so what is your relationship to this movie? Because obviously this is, like, in terms of my relationship, it's just, like, when you're coming up and trying to, like, I like film, this yep. is one of those, like... <laughs> 20 films that they put down in front of you and go like cool if you like movies you need to watch this and yeah. obviously it is part of that like heteronormative white male which which using the canon kind of thing but yeah. like i do think it's one of those movies that does escape the fact that like oh it's in the IMDb top 250 movies and you look at that list and it's like oh god this is 
<laughs> Why the fuck is Joker on here now? In the year of our Lord 2021. I think you just have to discredit anything that came out in the last, I don't know, 10 years on IMDb. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's exactly that. It, it's the movie that when you're trying to tell yourself you're a serious film uh, aficionado, a cinephile, if you will, that, you know, you must watch this. You must say you love it, even if you don't. Uh, I, d- I did always like it. I guess I respect it more now than I used to. Um, I wouldn't say it's like a strong, strong love. Like I, I, I guess I've I, I've always like I look at Scorsese's technical filmmaking and I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, dude, <laughs> do your shit. But none of it, or rarely any of it, hits like really gets its hooks into me emotionally. I guess because he has this like fascination with telling stories about scumbags. <laughs> <laughs> They're just always like an exercise in in this is how you make a fucking film, but like in terms of like a story that like lives with me and I think about all the time kind of thing. Like he rarely gets me that way. But you know, I don't want to say I don't like it. I, of course I do. It's just it wasn't one that I picked. No, I mean that's fair enough. I mean again, you your tastes obviously don't align to the the style of movie that Scorsese makes. Or at least when Scorsese is in. Less plot, more character, crime yeah. stories. I've got bad taste. Know. We can just say that. I've got bad taste. It's fine. No, because you love The Departed. And obviously <laughs> I the do, Departed which people. everyone else who likes him is like, it's like his worst movie. <laughs> but that's the thing, because I've, I've watched an awful lot of Scorsese movies this year that I kind of missed out on. Like, I, I checked off, like, Silence and Hugo and stuff like that. And mm. it's amazing to watch, because obviously he still can pull out A Wolf of Wall Street at the age that he is now and do this high energy thing but it does feel that when you're watching silence and the irishman he's kind of becoming kind of a bit more quiet a bit more meditative mm-hmm. in terms of how he's approaching these things and like silence is a really fucking long movie <laughs> and i do not think you would get along with it if you saw it <laughs> is, that, mean, is that the one with andrew garfield it's the one with andrew garfield okay. and adam driver and mm. Liam neeson as priests in japan and it's like oh, yeah, 161 yeah. minutes of like <sighs> grappling with the idea that like you could be killed for your christian faith and like doesn't uh-huh. are you should you be a martyr for your faith in this world of people who just want to kill you essentially yeah because i mean but that is the thing like you look at scorsese's filmography and he has two very core key things that fascinate him and it is crime and religion because mm-hmm. obviously to put this movie in context of, of the time before we like tackle some of the plot details this movie was like they optioned the book like the year after it came out because uh, Scorsese got a galley proof and called Nicholas Pileggi and said he wanted to do it and he was going to shoot this before he did The Last Temptation of Christ but then the money arrived to come do Last Temptation of Christ so he delays doing this movie a couple of years so they can get Last Temptation of Christ out in the world and then Goodfellas is immediate follow up and obviously it comes out in well it comes out in Venice first of all it, on September 9th 1990 he wins the Silver Bear best director and then it releases in the united states on september 19th 1990 so matt do you have any like background information to give us uh yes i do the 90s you know (laughs) i think i said this in when we were doing sort of the early 2000s it's kind of staggering to see how low some of these box office takes are and you still make it into the top like 50 or whatever because goodfellas only i say only 46 million almost 47 million is still the 26th highest grossing movie of the year like just below hard to kill look who's talking to awakenings problem child edward scissorhand 
Uh, the top ten for that year were Home Alone, Ghost, Dances with Wolves, Pretty Woman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Fucking Turtles, Hunt for Red October, Total Recall, Die Hard 2, Dick Tracy, Kindergarten Cop. You know, there's family stuff there, there's Oscar Beatty stuff there. It, it's refreshing to see very little... You know, it just doesn't exist back then. Like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a relatively new property and it immediately gets a movie and it makes a lot of money, but it's not like the big giant franchise machine is spitting out its 14th remake or sequel. Like, Die Hard 2, the only sequel of those. Yeah, but it just still is staggering. Like, Home Alone made the most money that year and it made less than $300 million worldwide. Um, which would be, that would be a flop by today's standards. Although, you know, obviously made for like a fraction of the cost. But yeah, Goodfellas, you know, it opens at number one uh, in September of, of 1990, ahead of Postcards from the Edge, Ghost, Narrow Margin, Funny About Love, Death Warrant, Flatliners, Presumed Innocent, Dark Man, and Hardware. But it obviously cleaned up, well, a little bit at the Oscars. It gets nominated for Best Picture, loses to Dancers with Wolves, goes up against fellow Mafia movie The Godfather Part 3. We just hand Francis Ford Coppola Oscar nominations, apparently. Uh, also Ghost and Awakenings. Scorsese loses Best Director to Kevin Costner against all odds. Um, yeah, I, that's that's fucked up. Best Actor, Robert De Niro, does not get nominated for this. I think he got nominated for like a BAFTA and like all, all sorts of other awards for lead actor because he's number one build, even if he's not the main character. But he did get nominated for Awakenings. Um, Jeremy Irons won that year. Uh, best Supporting Actor, though, Joe Pesci, with his immortal Tommy DeVito, wins that quite deservedly. Yeah, and, you know... Lor- Lorraine Bracco is nominated for Best Supporting Actress but loses yes. to Whoopi Goldberg as well. Yeah. And she's um, really good. To- and, like, she there is. is this phenom of, like, actresses just disappearing. Um, uh, you know, they, they lock down these two or three huge roles and then Hollywood is just unkind to them after a certain point. I mean, because obviously she is really, really fucking good in this movie and I think one of those things where, like, Obviously, when she takes the role, she's she's terrified this to be in this like massively masculine movie. But she does give it mm-hmm. a maybe not a centre, but like she definitely really makes her present felt throughout the movie. And like her decline is almost like more depressing than his yeah. decline. Seeing her going from like scolding him for it to like, hey, give me a hit or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> and like they're, they're going on drug runs together and shit like that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and and obviously, she, she like her big role after this. Uh, in terms of like just overall renown, is she does play probably the biggest character in the Sopranos, who is a a, a Goodfellas alum essentially, right where so. she is second build in those first like three four seasons until the show kind of pivots away from it being the show where where Tony talks to his therapist, and it, it is a uh, shame because okay. like. <laughs> Like the first three seasons are very much centered on that relationship, and her arc kind of ends. I mean, she's still on the show throughout the rest of it, but like her arc ends after a very traumatic moment for her, and then she kind of doesn't have much to do until the final season, and it's a bit of a shame. Yeah. But it's more they've kind of realized that Edie Falco does fantastic work on that show. I, get, I guess I should, I should like watch things like The Sopranos and Mad Men and all these big TV shows before I sweepingly declare that actors disappear. Um, well, I mean, but, she, but she hasn't done much since then. No, and yeah. Then, yeah. Like, That's like, very clearly, like, Sopranos is basically a love letter to Goodfellas. It's like Goodfellas the show. So, like, obviously you seek out a Goodfellas cast member like that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. obviously Michael Imperioli is the other one who has his, like, one scene cameo or two scene cameo in this movie, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, and, like, 
just before we like move fully into Goodfellas, just other big movies in 1990. This will be our only stop in 1990. It's rare for us to do a one and done, but yeah, Angel at My Table, Awakenings, Dance of Wolves, Dick Tracy, Edward Scissorhands, <laughs> Ghost, Kings of New York, Paris is Burning. A decent year for movies, I would say. Yeah, but... I, but it was it was one of the things where like we had a couple of movies. I think on like a short list. I think Home Alone was on. I think I very. Version. I think I tossed it out there as like a as a very in pencil entry on the preliminary list, and then very quickly rubbed it out. <laughs> yeah, but it was one of those things where like every movie that we have here that like ooh I wouldn't mind discussing this. There's a better movie from that director later on that decade. Where it's like, would we do Angel at My Table? Probably not when no. the piano exists. Like, would we do Edward Scissorhands? Probably not. No. based on like other movies from Tim Burton this decade, wouldn't do Miller's Crossing, we wouldn't do Total Recall, just because more interesting, fertile movies to discuss down the line from these directors. Yeah, exactly. And the director rule kicks in. Um, and you do see that a lot here, where a lot of directors have multiple really strong ones, whereas like I think through the first two volumes, there were only actually really a couple of instances where it's like, oh, I would have loved to have done this if not for the director rule. Like... I, I, I don't know if it's, like, fewer people are in the game at this point or, or what, but just coincidentally, there's just... There are, there are several uh, directors in the 90s who have, like, two, three, four really strong movies. Yeah. It's more like one or two in the 2000s, 2010s. So, so speaking of that in relation to Scorsese, mm-hmm. like, are there any other 90s movies from Scorsese that you have, like, strong feelings for... Because, like, we could do Cape Fear and we could spend half the time discussing The Simpsons parody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do like Cape Fear. I don't love Cape Fear. Casino, I just have always thought of as a worse Goodfellas. Yeah, I think I've seen Bringing Out the Dead, but I can't remember anything about it. Cundan feels like the opposite of what we would normally discuss. (laughs) Like, uh, although still shorter than Goodfellas, so. Oh, great. But yeah, you know, like, it, that's his reputation. He, he does, like, an amazing movie every decade, and then the rest is, like, mixed results. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'd say, like, it's actually arguable that the 2010s with Wolf of Wall Street and Irishman is one of his, like, stronger decades <laughs> in a while. Because even in the 2000s, the one that people want to bring out is mm. is The Departed, is kind of the only one that people want to mention. Like, Aviator is in some conversations. People um, seem to really like Gangs of New York. Yeah, but I think like, it's a bit more heightened, and what they like about it is is mm. just the performances more than anything. Than yeah, anything but I mean, else. I would say, I mean, you know, obviously, The Irishman isn't for me, but Shutter Island, Wolf of Wall Street, and Irishman's a pretty strong trio compared to you know some of his other decades, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Oh, right. Got, so, oh, you've got King of Comedy and Raging Bull and Color of Money in the eighties. Oh wow, eighties and After Hours. Jeez. Okay, that's probably the one. Sorry. But let's talk good fellas. <laughs> let's talk good fellas. So I miss Ray Liotta. <laughs> you miss Ray Liotta. Yeah, like what what the fuck happened? Like he gets this part that like he had to really fight for because he wasn't a name at the time. Gives this amazing performance. And like it's not that he completely vanished, but his window of being like a big name movie star is like a decade. And then a couple Less of cool. Yeah, exactly. And then like it's, a couple it's, it's of weird. spots. Like, he has a couple of things. Ten years after this movie, he's doing a voice in the second GTA 3 <laughs> game. Like, which yeah. isn't a, a slight on him, but, like, it's in an era where if you're a movie star, you 
aren't necessarily doing. No, like you can these... get you can get famous people to do voices in video games now, but the early two thousands, the mid two thousands, not not so much. Like aging yeah, people who are struggling to get work, <laughs> which is what makes it weird that like obviously GTA becomes such a phenomenon that they manage to do this and they get Bradley Cooper for two or for Vice City and they get <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson for. San Andreas. Yeah, so fucked but, up that he's in it for like one minute, by the by. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie for one minute. Don't even think you see his face. You, sh- you do, you do. Is like behind his head. Uh, yeah, from the side, mostly. Yeah, yeah. But just, you know, obviously, like, De Niro gets some praise and, and Pesci gets the Oscar and, and like, Bracco gets nominated and everything, but like, I think Ray Liotta is really good in this, and I think, it, it, I look through, and he gets nominated. I don't think he got nominated like anywhere. Maybe some like smaller stuff, but no Baftas, no Oscars, no nothing. Like, and it's like he's really good in this. I would actually argue he's better than Robert De Niro in this. But oh, absolutely, De Niro is like, the name, so he would be my nomination for this movie, like over Robert De Niro. Yeah. Um, have you seen Something Wild? Uh, no. It's fantastic movie in which he basically it starts off with this kind of like quirky romantic comedy between um melanie griffith and jeff daniels as like he's completely confused by this woman who's like taking him away and like gets excited by the idea of him cheating on his wife despite the fact he's been divorced for like nine months (laughs) and then they run into her ex-boyfriend played by ray liotta and the entire movie goes from kind of charming romantic comedy to scary. genuinely tense scary movie <laughs> because yeah that that's his thing he, he is an incredibly intense looking man and like you know that that that's like his reputation for like a decade or, or or so is like he's this similar to sean penn like he is known for being this like kind of scary looking dude and maybe that's the problem maybe he gets typecast as like you know you can only play gangsters because you're this kind of or, or criminals or you know scary people but there is kind of that charm to him, um, you know, in the younger years here where he's <laughs> trying to play 21, but, you know, whatever. You know, he, he is like a charming young man. And, like, you can see, like, you know, I kept comparing it to Wolf of Wall Street, but, like, you can you can see a little bit of Leo in him here. And it, it's just... It, and he's really good as a narrator as well. Like, the whole movie kind of hinges on his narration. And it, yeah, it just it just blows me away that like you have this movie so early in your career, especially uh, for film, um, and then you don't. He doesn't really go anywhere, and he doesn't get the credit he deserves as the main character. Well, that's the thing is like he has this like one, two, three hit of something wild, Field of Dreams, Goodfellas, yeah. and it's like cool. You the the decade is open for you now. You can do whatever the hell you want, mm. and he just doesn't capitalize on that until like he's cameoing in multiple Muppets movies and then has like a really <laughs> shitty 2000s and then like he's voicing himself in B movie and, yeah, yeah. and all exactly. and, and I think he's had like a decent couple of years now where like he's in Marriage Story yeah, um, yeah, he's yeah. going to be in the Sopranos film when that drops which obviously is like coming full circle in terms okay. of it but, yeah. but he isn't doing anything really that you're like Cool. This is Ray Liotta, this guy who like could have potentially got like two or three Oscar nominations early yeah. on in his career. It's just it, it's it's like the career of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, but like that he didn't he didn't get old, you know. <laughs> like it happened to him. Yeah. Like I'm not saying that those two aren't in good stuff in their like latter years, but generally it's like oh no, <laughs> to a lot of the, the projects they accept, and it's like it just hit him way earlier than it, it should have. Um, I don't know if he just had a bad agent or what, but 
Anyway, yeah, I mean, the narration throughout, like, that iconic opening line of for as long as I remember I always wanted to be a gangster and, like, so much of this narration has been parodied so much and because it's good and it's well written and, like, you know, getting the, the line, you know, because it was originally called Wise Guys after the book and, like, you know, that's all they are. They're just They're just the police department for Wise Guys. It's like, you know some really great stuff that just really establishes the tone and like the kid they've got playing young him christopher Cerrone, pretty good <laughs> you know he doesn't have to do a lot but like a charming like young kid as, as the like you know the mafia apprentice like the the young boy who's like helping out kind of thing i really enjoy the the this like flashback period with him meeting jimmy conway and and establishing poorly and, and, and all this sort of stuff. I think all of that works incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, I like that they that they find a person who looks like a child version of Joe Pesci, which is incredible. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I feel so sorry for you, kid, but also you're so well cast to be playing like, this young Joe Pesci, even though Joe Pesci is obviously like, well, he's 78, Robert De Niro is like, he's older than Robert De Niro, but Robert De Niro gets to play the child version of himself in these flashbacks. <laughs> well, yeah, because he's, yeah, they're trying to play Pesci as much younger than he is, and yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, De Niro gets to just have dark hair and then later grey hair and ridiculous glasses. But yeah, I mean, so, so obviously Ray Lewis is playing Henry Hill, who, I don't know if you dug into, like, the background of Henry Hill, but is like, I love that his entire personality and like his later life is basically just I'm the guy the Goodfellas is based on. <laughs> yeah, trading off that like uh, yeah, like they give you the all that stuff gets... at the end of like you know he he got divorced, he lives in Seattle, blah 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 blah, blah and like yeah, that that Robert De Niro could just call him every day and ask about things like you know how did this guy smoke a cigarette and stuff like that. And... Also, I love that like. Because when the movie comes out, he just goes like, fuck it, I don't want to be in witness protection anymore. I'm just going to, like, out myself. And he just got to live. <laughs> Which is incredible to think that, like, because normally the Mafia are, they don't look kindly on people who exit the life. Especially they don't look kindly on people who rat out people who put them in jail. Oh, no. And I don't know if it's, like, his involvement in this seminal piece of Mafia artwork. And they're just like, oh, we have to give him a slide. He's he's given us the Goodfellas, the ultimate, like, gangster movie. We can watch pizza to this. (laughs) Watch pizza. Eat pizza and watch this. Uh, Yeah. I don't know, yeah. And maybe he's just too public. Like, if he ever just went missing, it's like, oh, come on. (laughs) We know what happened there. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, mean, yeah, all this stuff in the 1950s is is really, really good. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, obviously you've got the obsession with the Copacabana, (laughs) which, like, I don't... Is that a place that, like, I assume I could never go to it, but, like, it just feels like I wouldn't even want to go there just for fear of, like, who would be in the Copacabana. I, yeah, I don't know. Like the scene where like they're walking around in first person, introducing these increasingly ridiculously nicknamed <laughs> gangsters is excellent. <clears throat> Everyone's uh, got to love, you know, the guy that like exclusively speaks in Italian. I can't speak Italian, but you know, just everything he says, it's just these little like cliched little snippets. And yeah, like you get the scene, you know. Why am I funny? Do I amuse you? Like you know, like can I just say, Rayleigh really, laughs like a psychopath. Um, <laughs> yes, that might does. be why he didn't. Oh, he you can't laugh. No career for you. I mean, it works for the setting and like the high tension and everything, but he laughs like he doesn't know what laughter is. 
Um, what I obviously what's so good about this scene is obviously <laughs> Pesci turns it on a dime yeah. where they're having this great time and then immediately makes us into like this tense circumstance yeah. and you feel like he's legitimately angry for being called funny. And he's like, why am I funny? What about this funny? <laughs> it's just, just so like, irrational. <laughs> yeah, he can't be just a naturally funny person. It's like, you are laughing at me because I'm small, because yeah, I yeah. sound funny. Like, what, what is it that you find funny about me? Because whatever you find funny about me is an insult. And then as the scene goes on and on, it becomes like, oh, it's a joke. But obviously, as you watch more of the movie, you go like, was it a joke? If, like, no, if it's just scene... because Henry is his actual friend and like everyone is well-liked there. But then like you see other people, other characters, like less, you know, waiters and, and lesser associates do the... You basically see the exact same scene, except he does attack them or shoot them or murder them. <laughs> And he just, you know, he very clearly has a little man complex. Like, he has been the lowest rank on the totem. He has been the short kid, the bullied kid, the fat kid. I don't know. But, you know, there is very clearly a intense desire to be taken seriously. Even So, you know, you get this ridiculous thing where he's telling a story he wants you to laugh at. And then when you t- compliment him, he threatens to murder you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, so obviously, I mean, obviously, Joe Pesci is like the breakout of this movie. It's mm. still insane to this day that he has this and Home Alone the same year. <laughs> yes, the Wet Bandit himself. <laughs> and then, have you, so have you seen his Oscar speech for this year? Uh, if I have, I don't really remember it. It's it's literally about six seconds long. It's oh, okay, literally cool. going up. Yeah, he gave a five-word Oscar speech. And essentially, all he says, it's my privilege, thank you, and then walks off the stage. <laughs> Excellent. And it's like, and as, as everyone who talks about this movie is, like, Joe Pesci is 100 words a minute in this movie. Like, he's he's all over it. I think they've done, like, clocks of how many swear words are in this movie. It's uh-huh. like 320 fucks, and he is half of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they unleash this in, in Lethal Weapon. He It becomes just... Yeah, look how much this guy talks. And to think of him just going up, I'm like, yeah, cool, thanks. Um, amazing. I'm sure he got into some trouble for not doing his proper speech because Hollywood's I mean, weird. Yeah, but His agent calling and going, you didn't thank me for getting you this role. Like, <laughs> what on earth have you done? But Excellent. Yeah, because he didn't think he was going to win, which is one of those like great pieces where it's like, how did you not think you were going to win? And you're like, oh, because the Oscars are fucking stupid and they probably would have given it to like Graham Greene from Dances with Wolves or Andy yeah. Garcia from The Godfather Part 3. Like, Isn't this one of the rare award shows where they don't tell them ahead of time if they've won? I feel most, they're like, yeah, you've won, by the way. Yes, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, it's obviously one of the things where like, as you get to the modern day, you end up with situations like Anne Hathaway to win the Oscar for Lake Miz and you're like, you've won every single other award. Like, how did you not know this was going to happen? Yeah. But but there is still a level of secrecy to the Oscars where you can have the fuck-ups with Moonlight and La La Land <laughs> where, like, the only people who know are the accountants and if the accountants are too busy schmoozing people off the sides, they're not able to react quick enough to fix the award fuck-up that yeah. they're supposed to. And allegedly Marissa Tomei. But anyway... Um, yes. <laughs> speaking of women, some of the rare women in the movie, uh, you know, th- this is a portion where you meet Karen and, like, the the shift of narration over to her still fucks me up every time, even though I know it's, it's coming. It's, it's so jarring, and, like, it re- it does work, but it is this yeah. thing where, like, it does become, and obviously she kind of fades away as the movie goes on, but in this courtship yeah. section, it is this kind of, like, tit-for-tat, like, you're alternating between their perspectives on this kind of thing, and... Yeah. 
it's almost this kind of like wearing down of her opinions on him almost where like when she's doing the narration she's kind of aloof and holding this world at arm's length and as her narration kind of subsides it kind of because she's more and more accepting of this world almost yeah if you want love lower your expectations as boy burnham would say um yeah and like she's got this fire where like you know he's of you know he's completely disinterested in uh he's just on this double date because of some weird racial tensions that are just bubbling in the background for the whole movie um and sometimes in the foreground um yeah and like you know completely rude disinterested leaves as soon as he can basically shoves her to her front door and is like yeah good night and then she comes and like cusses him out in front of all of his friends no fear whatsoever and then he's like oh cool i'm in love with you now um and then he completely obviously loses interest in her after like a few years but yeah and and it obviously it would have to completely retool the movie for it to be a complete two-hander of like constantly shifting back and forth between them you could see a world where it shifts between five or six characters but yeah, I mean, I think it does really. It works really well when it's it's at, it's at its best when it's shifting between these two in in this section. And so, so is that is that you saying that your least favorite section of the movie is kind of like obviously the the tensions between the two of them comes to a boil when he has the affair and his house and this woman in another apartment and she finds out and starts kind of going over there and and harassing her and stuff like that and that's kind of cut short by him being put in prison. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, I think it just it, it just hits a point where the story starts to interest me less, and it's just kind of like, and then this happened to them, and then this happened to them, and then this happened to them. And it kind of feels like, to me personally, I think you could have achieved the same... Like, if you boiled down this, this story to its bullet points, I think you could have hit all of them and removed, like, several scenes. But, I mean... You can say that about anything, I suppose. Yeah, it's I mean, not really a bullet point movie, I suppose. Is the no, thing. I mean, and I think I think here is what's interesting to kind of bring up the Irishman because the Irishman has a famous woman problem in it, mm-hmm. where there really aren't that many female characters, and yet I, there is an argument I would make for giving Anna Paquin like a best supporting actress nomination for her okay. role in the Irishman, in which she has one line of dialogue. Uh, okay. Which is like, like the entire the entire point of the movie is kind of like it it takes Karen but doesn't have her in, in or it takes the idea of Karen where it's this woman who is slowly beaten down, beaten down, beaten down until yeah. she becomes like so subservient to the mob and so on side with it that it's kind of depressing. Whereas yeah. Anna Paquin's role in The Irishman is like she's playing the daughter who's watched her father lash out with violence like his entire life and mm. hates what he does and hates how he treats her boyfriends and stuff like that and just she silently watches so much of the movie and yeah. hates the way okay. her father acts around it and then the final her one line of dialogue in the movie is her basically going like fuck you dad like I don't want to speak to you yeah. ever again essentially stop making me want to watch The Irishman <laughs> um, but, but then and then obviously the other thing is we're obviously you're you don't like how this movie goes on and on and on, or like there's there's things you cut from this. And yeah. The Irishman is this really interesting kind of counterpoint to it, where functionally the movies are the same. The Irishman is very much like, let's do this mob movie, let's have a real piece of history. The Lufthansa Vault in this movie and the, yeah. uh, the death of Jimmy Hoffa in The Irishman. But then the Irishman has the decision where obviously this movie jumps ahead ten years and you get some contextualization of what's happened. The Irishman just goes like, "Well, what if we ended the movie with the the big crime, but we just carried on going 
for 30 years and showed the downsides to all this. And so uh-huh. it comes like it's the left, it's Goodfellas 0.5, where like right. you get this entire like contextualization of like, well, what if you were this asshole as, yeah. a, as a 20, 30 year old man who the only friends you had were people who could die at any minute? <laughs> like, yeah. like what, what if your best friend in the world was Tommy DeVito? but he died and you had to live for another 50 years without him. And I guess my thing is, if you want to hit both of those notes, you have to move quicker or you pick one or the other and you make a sequel or whatever. But I, you know, I'm not, you know, obviously he knows what he's doing. Incredibly well-reviewed filmmaker. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a thing for me, but yeah. um, You see her like starting to, you know, she starts off very like, I, I love when he's trying to impress her and like he leads her through this ridiculous tour of the back of the restaurant and everything. It, it like lasts for so long, but in a good way. Then they finally sit down and she's like, what do you do again? And he's like, I'm in, I'm in insurance or whatever. And she's like, it doesn't feel like you're in insurance. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, construction, I, sorry. It doesn't feel like you're in construction. Um, and I then, love like, her parents' reactions as well <laughs> to like everything where like she's still living at home yeah. and her mum is just like, who is this guy? I kind of hate him. And Dad is like, I don't, say, I don't want to say he's scared, but it's just kind of like shrug. I guess we got to go along with this. Yeah, yeah. I think he knows what's up. Yeah, and like you know, her meeting all of the mafia wives and everything, and, and you know, you kind of see what she will become, kind of thing. But at this point, she's just like young and curious and, and pretty, and like blown away by the lifestyle and like you know these ridiculous walk-in his and hers walk-in wardrobes and. Obviously, it's not on the level of Wolf of Wall Street, but again, it is that sort of pre-runner where they they eventually move into this awful-looking, just (laughs) so gaudy, like, faux-Asian architecture, slide-away wall to reveal a tiny television and a a personal bar and everything. And, like, you know, this is what excess looks like. It's just trashy architecture that costs so much. I guess this is where, you know, they start on on a sort of a, not a mystery box, but, you know, there's a body in the back of the car. How did we end up here? And then you end up back at that moment where Tommy stabs a made man to death. Well, he kicks him to death and then stabs him to death and then gets shot to death and everything. And like, it is sort of seeing that, um, um, do I amuse you kind of scene taken to that extreme where he just, you know, he has this chip on his shoulder about him. They clearly have a past. Yeah, they murder him. They're not supposed to. He's a made man. A concept they don't really... I mean, they kind of touch on it, but it's kind of jarring to me that you get the proper explanation of what that means so late in the movie, um, when, when Tommy's about to be made himself. But yeah, you know, <laughs> and just, I fucking love that they stop off at Tommy's mum's house, and she insists on them having this full sit-down meal while this guy is dying in the back of the car. And she's so charismatic as well, um, and their, like, relationship together. Oh, is this, is this Martin Scorsese's mum? Uh, I think that is Martin Scorsese's mum, and I think the picture she brings out is a picture drawn by Nicholas Pileggi, who obviously <laughs> wrote the book and co-wrote the screenplay. Okay. Like, like I, lo- I the discussion about the picture is great because it's just like, look, one guy's looking this way, the other guy's looking that way. <laughs> and I love how they all play it. Like, obviously, Joe Pesci is so like, you know, come on, man. Like, you know, like it's this like very like their like relationship, their dynamic is very funny. Obviously, Robert De Niro is the charming one who can like you know, bridge every social situation and then you've just got Ray Liotta just steaming. Because, I mean, that's kind of a subplot of the movie is Henry is clearly less chill with murder 
than the others. Like, you see him beat the fucking shit out of that guy that assaulted Karen or did threw her out of a car. <laughs> I don't know if it was moving, but yeah. Um, you know, you see him just, like, smash it, cave his face in with a pistol. But, like, when it comes to, like, the full-on murder, he's clearly, if not fully disturbed by it, he's just less comfortable than the others are. And, like, that is where you start to see their dynamics starting to strain, where they're, like, they're the best of friends for a long time. And then, like, it's when this hyper-violence starts and they're just murdering more and more people. And Tommy is just going off into Psychoville and then, like, Jimmy is getting more out into the... You know, he he started out as, like, he just loved to steal and, like, he loves making money and then it becomes a little bit more of a... He's running his own weird side operation um, because, yeah, he's Irish, therefore he can never become a made man, he can never be a boss, all of that. And you see Henry starting to sort of not be put off by them, but, like, yeah, that that is in the background as they... Yeah, you link back up with the beginning of the um, movie as they violently yeah. murder him. I mean, that's that's the interesting part. Is obviously, this movie goes out of its way to not have Henry Hill kill anyone. Yeah. Like, he, he is aware and is around murders, but the, but the movie doesn't have him actually commit a murder. Um, and you I, wonder I if some that, of that is because he's alive and cooperating with you on the source material. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you don't know whether it is. But it does create this very interesting counterpoint where, like, his two friends are obviously broken in very different ways, where, mm-hmm. like, Joe Pesci is kind of, like, white fragile masculinity, mm-hmm. like, writ large, where, like, he just, he cannot take anything. There's, like, a slight in, uh, insult and, like, not react in like an over inappropriate and overproportionate way yeah and you see him you see him struggle to get a girlfriend quite frankly because Mm. there's that woman who just makes an innocent comment about sammy davis jr or whatever and he can't help but like correct i mean it's kind of like an i'm actually guy but (laughs) but with massive racial (laughs) overtones and like you know he i think you see him with like a woman later on after they've all gotten out of prison but like he lives with his mother. Well, I don't know if he lives with her, but like you know, he he spends a lot of time with his mother. He has no woman in his life. He's constantly picking fights with men. Like yeah, that that he has got the biggest of chips on his shoulder. We don't hear anything about his father. We assume that probably wasn't a great relationship for him. <laughs> yeah, and then and then you have obviously Jimmy Conway, who doesn't start to unravel until after they kill yeah. Tommy. But like his unraveling is so much more interesting because mm-hmm. it is it feeds into the paranoia that also feeds Henry like as you get into the, the last chunk of the movie and stuff like that. And obviously this moment where they kill the made man is like the, the linchpin of the movie where like it's, it's kind of constantly in the background for a good mm. like two hours of the film essentially, isn't it? Because obviously the film opens <laughs> with, with them disposing of the body. You finally flash back and find out what the context is. And it's like, it's that first huge moment and it's mostly Tommy and Jimmy who yeah. are carrying it out. And it's interesting because, like, Jimmy kind of tries to pay neutral peacemaker in the immediate aftermath. Like, Henry is incredibly apologetic and like, oh, love, we'll buy you drinks. And he's kind of more even-handed. He's like, well, you did insult him, but hey, here's a drink. And you would think he would be the one wise enough to say, hey, let's not kill a made man. But he's, like, fully in on it. He's, like, helping savagely kick his face in. Like, he dented his shoe on his face. Yeah, and then, like, they have to cover it up. And then the the absurd comedy HBO style moment of like, shit, somebody bought the land, we have to go dig the body back up. (laughs) Big fan of that. But yeah, I I guess that's part of it is that like that happens and is such, it feels like the first major plot point almost or or the big turn around, what is it, 45 minutes, an hour into the movie. 
and then it's kind of like that's just on the back burner for a long time and then you get your almost uncut gems-esque moment where he just gets shot in the fucking head because of what he did an hour and a half ago or whatever and i guess you know in some ways that's cool like it's like oh don't forget there are consequences they never forget everything comes back to haunt you blah 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 but yeah i guess i kind of i'm more on board of with it when you know it's it's the flashback it's the establishing them it's the it's the this big crazy moment that's the stuff that interests me and and then whacking him in the end and like the poorly related stuff and i guess i have less interest in when it just devolves into like henry getting into drugs and having multiple mistresses and and all of this but yeah i think i think henry's henry's bullshit is like less interesting than when he's interacting with everyone else like the more interesting part is his relationship to jimmy conway afterwards Mm -hmm. and and jimmy going off the deep end because basically so once they've like moved all the movie and stuff like that they end up they start doing all these side hustles don't they yeah yeah like it starts to become like we need you to go or well, it starts off they need to go get the, the money from the gambler down in Tampa. Yeah, which is the big, they're doing the big a lot Jimmy. of business down in Florida and like, you know, that, that becomes a threat later on. <laughs> yeah, but it, so they go down there and then basically they end up st- stealing someone who ends up turning out to have an FBI typist for a sister. Yes. And so they get sentenced to 10 years in prison, but it's like the most cushy time in prison that you could imagine. It's ridiculous. Like, they were just going into elaborate, like, oh, this is the guy that did this in the kitchen. And it's like, why are you entirely on the kitchen? And then it turns out, yeah, they just they just live a nice cushy life. They're, and, like, this is when Henry starts dealing pills in, in yes. prison. And, you know, Karen is still turning up. And, and you know, she, she knows about the first mistress, Janice. And I did actually, just a very small side point here, and this is the part of the film that interests me the most, is sort of the inner workings of the Mafia, that like, despite the rampant misogyny and treatment of women and and all of this, there are these traditional values at the heart of the Mafia where, like, Paulie is like, you you have to go back to your wife, like, you can't get divorced. And don't they say, like, we're not animals, you can't divorce your wife or whatever? What the last thing is that, like, they're all obviously very Christian, even if... I'd say Catholic, not, but... Yeah, <laughs> Catholic, Catholic and everything like that. And so you have these situations where, like, you're allowed a side piece. We will, like, they, they have that line in the movie where it's like, this night is for wives, this night is for mistresses. And, uh-huh. like, you just, you just come on two different nights and bring <laughs> whichever the other one is, and we, we look the other way or acknowledge them in, in, like, a different way or whatever. Yeah. And if you fuck up, then that's on you. But at the end of the day, you're not supposed to fall in love with your mistress. Your mistress is just... Yeah, your, your wife this is, is what a man needs. No one understands the pressures of being a man. You must fuck randoms. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, exactly. it's just part of it. And yeah. it's it's just interesting that, like, you know, they're, like, friendly with her, like, kissing her on the cheek, and, like, oh, hey, how's it going? He's like, this is all fine. However, you must go back to your wife. Um, yeah. And also that Paulie frowns on drugs. And it's like, again, it seems like this weird distinction, like, you guys are cool with with murder and, like, theft and all these things, but, like, I don't know if it's the entire Mafia, but, like, I do feel this is a thing where, like, certain sects of the Mafia, they look down on dealing drugs. And, like, in fairness, he's proven completely right because it's he's not brought down by people discovering murders or anything like that. He's brought down by a larger, like, FBI investigation into narcotics, which was rampant in the 80s. Yeah, I, um, I do wonder how much of it is driven by the idea that, like... So obviously the mafia is more involved in things such as trade unions and um, 
Yeah. Like and, and all these little thefts where it's like, well, well, we'll steal some meat, we'll steal some stuff in the back of a truck, pay the driver, and like the only person pay the cops, pay yeah, yeah, yeah. The only people getting hurt here are like the business owners and stuff like that. With like, it doesn't affect regular people. I mean, they um, are like, uh, well, yeah, okay, business owners, yeah, they are like beating the shit out of people for protection money and stuff all the yes. time, and like they in the opening, like that Henry points to a postman and they fucking beat him half to death <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> Because because he's delivering school letters yeah. saying it's not me to school. <laughs> yeah, and I guess like you know, catching a beating is just part of the world to them. Like you know, at some point we're all gonna get our ass kicked, but like, and they'll murder someone who like breaks the rules, as it were. But yeah, as you say, it's generally about bribery and blackmail and protection money and 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 that kind of stuff. Yeah, and and, and I do wonder if there's a level of like racial stuff there where. Mm-hmm. Especially then, are drugs seen as more of a yeah. black African American community thing? Where it's like, well, we don't want to get involved with that because that's yeah, <laughs> like the things that are going on in these communities that we don't particularly want to be involved in. Yeah, because Reagan unleashed crack in on, on LA. Yeah, well, it is, well so. it, exactly. <laughs> like all those, all those theories and stuff like that about like what's happening and how it's yeah. like a massively like does a massive disservice to black people and like and again different drugs are aimed at different people and cocaine is obviously such a white person drug especially (laughs) in the 80s and i i I do think there is an element of like maybe not sympathy but like you know you look at henry when he is fully strung out towards the end and like all of his associates are sort of like come on look at you kind of thing and it's like there is that kind of like we conduct ourselves with rules and respect and you have to have a nice suit and everything and it is appearing and like i guess they they just are aware like drugs will fuck you up don't get into that shit yeah like like um, you can kill someone on the street looking at you funny as long as they are not <laughs> someone who has got protection behind them like you could do whatever you want but we also have rules that prevent yeah, you from doing yeah, certain yeah. things and one of those rules is you don't do drugs um yeah whilst yeah. we are on prison though i do we do need to talk about the best shot in the movie which what, is the um, person getting a blowjob next to someone <laughs> No, oh, okay. no, 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 not, not that one. <laughs> not that one, okay. No, we need to talk about... The slow uh, cutting of the garlic. The slow cutting of the garlic. With a razor is, blade, yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's poorly doing it, isn't it? Where it's yeah. like this, this tiny, tiny like razor blade and is just cutting the garlic into such tiny like slices that apparently it dissolves. <laughs> it liquefies. Like liquefies. Yeah. It's just, oh God, I could watch that for hours. Yeah, that was pretty mesmerizing to be fair. But yeah, you know, they, they, they do their time. They, you know, Henry is dealing drugs. Karen is visiting him every week and smuggling shit in despite <laughs> the mistress. I do like that she spots Janice's name in the ledger. And he's like, I'm in fucking prison. How do I stop people from coming to see me? <laughs> Although, you know, I, you just say, stop coming to see me. Yeah, um, I, I do. What I do also really like is um, it seems pretty fucking obvious that he's doing something dodgy. Like, like the way he's just kind of like, I'm like, oh, you guys are all cooking and having games. I'm just going to wander off and go do some other stuff whilst also worry. shoving inconspicuous packages into my trousers. <laughs> don't worry about my plastic baggie that I'm hiding from you. Um, and I love that he's like, you know, they're smuggling in like fresh bread and and prosciutto and nice cheeses, and it's like, oh, this is the life. And they get out, and it's like he immediately hooks, gets into the drug game against Paulie's wishes. Eventually, brings in Jimmy and Tommy on it, who I think initially frowned on it, but then I'm like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. Well, it's it's because the amount of money he's making. Exactly. He's like, oh, yeah. we want money, like. Because yeah. they're not really getting all that much money. There's a couple of those like 
heights that they do. And obviously, money feels like the huge drive for most of them because this obviously leads to to Jimmy organising the um, the Lufthansa vault mm-hmm. robbery to steal uh, what is five point eight five million dollars worth and of cash I, and jewelry. And like they're cut to like. 50 grand or whatever and it's like oh man <laughs> there's so much more money out there but yeah you know it takes the idea from Maury and then eventually murders him and everything but but yeah but that, I mean this is when things start to get Jimmy like, starts to unravel a bit. like he's so furious at people for spending their money in like a flashy which is such way which such a good scene where mm-hmm. like he's going around this party and then people are showing up and like the, the mistress is wearing like the huge like fur coat and he's going like you're not supposed to spend the money yet like you start spending yeah. money they're gonna ask questions we don't yeah. want them asking questions yeah that's the thing you have to get rich but you have to really 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 wait <laughs> just to reap the benefits of it or you have to launder it or whatever but the thing um, is, the, obviously, all these guys are so used to the money coming from, like, oh, we just stole some meat from the back of, like, an ice truck. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to ask where the meat came, came from. The meat needs to go really quickly. So, like, fine, we can do that in a couple of days. Whereas, like, when you've stolen yeah. millions of dollars from somewhere, yeah. you need to get through it. And you, and Especially, you like, something as big as that. Like, the like stealing... Like, they steal from the airport earlier in the movie, but, like, to... Fully like steal from a an airline's vault and stuff like that is next level and like yeah like this is where they get really murder happy like there are just mm. bodies in dumpsters and <laughs> like it, it's it's a great montage of them yeah. basically going through like obviously you end up like the first one is Samuel L Jackson stacks who was like the driver <laughs> of the truck because they find the truck yeah and then it becomes like well he's the then it's like well anyone who knew stacks has to go mm-hmm. anyone who's spending money has to go Maury has to go because Maury keeps asking questions about where his money's going to be because yeah. Maury's got that huge debt and then he, he has and then even like is it Frenchy who like they were like really buddy buddy with much earlier in the movie and like even someone like him is gone um, yeah with the, with the horrifying like where they, they string him up in the, the ice truck and they're like it took yeah. several days to thaw him out and do a do an autopsy on him and <laughs> yeah. like that. And like, you know, more lettuce leaves, bigger lettuce leaves tumbling in the, in the garbage truck. Until until really it does become that Tommy and Henry are the only two that, that yeah. get away with it. Yeah, and Henry, I think Henry tries to justify it as like, well, the more people he kills, the less people we have to share the money with. But I think it is very clear that it's just also like, Jimmy is kind of losing his grip on, not sanity, but you know, he's getting really sloppy same with Tommy, like, attacking Spike. I can't remember where in the movie it happens, but him, like, you know, he shoot. or he, does he shoot him in the foot, or he, he does something to he, his he foot. Shoots, he shoots him in the foot, and then obviously he wears the cast, and, yeah. then, and then he makes Spike. fun of his cast, and he's like, hey, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and, like, Jimmy's like, hey, that's great. And then, then he just fucking shoots him, and he shouts at him, and yeah, like, it just feels like they are both getting more and more like, their separate issues are sort of taking them further off the reservation, as it were, to the point where Henry is, like... You know, he was very much the junior one to Jimmy and everything, and it starts to get to the point where, like, Henry's almost become... Well, I don't know, because he's still sort of scared of, of Jimmy a little bit. Like, there's that, I just kept my mouth shut and just did as he said kind of thing. <laughs> we do eventually get to Tommy being made a made man. And, like, you know, to drop that bombshell, it's like, oh, the, the one that has seemed like the kind of dweeb throughout has more prospects because he's full-blooded Italian and these two have Irish blood and, like, even though Joe Pesci's mother is from Sicily and everything, like, yeah, just the the fucked-up politics of that 
Yeah, where like because he's the only one who's purebred Sicilian, he can't he can get into it. Even though arguably Jimmy and Henry are bringing in more money yep. to the family, and like it is this, as you say, like weird racial tension bubbling up across the entire movie, where it's like, well, we can't have mixed race mafia people <laughs> involved in our, in our little boys club. <laughs> um, I did read apparently like ten years after this movie came out, they did actually change the rules in the mafia that would allow you to come in if you had uh, Italian blood on your father's side and <laughs> an Italian surname. <laughs> okay. Jesus so like, Christ. which which still would have excluded Jimmy Conway and Henry Hill, where I think one of the the like Henry Hill's dad was Irish. G- Irish, and then Jimmy Conway had an Irish surname, so yeah. neither of them would qualify to actually become made men at yeah. that point. So his dad had a hard on from getting a job as a teenager <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. I've been working since I was eleven. Get out of the house, boy. <laughs> um, yeah, and like this really hits Jimmy incredibly hard. And like you know, they thought they they say that thing of like you know if he's made, we're all made, kind of thing. By, by association or whatever, like they, they have his protection. They're all, they're all their dynamic will stay the same. Tommy's only just higher than them in sort of name only. Even if he is sort of like this guy's going to be our boss one day, and it is kind of devastating that like we check in with his mother again before he go. Like she's congratulating him. It's like does she know like fully what this is, or like does she just been told he's getting a promotion at work? Or um, I think she must to an extent know what's up but yeah and like you know probably De Niro's best scene in the movie is he like destroys the phone booth devastated to learn what happened to Tommy and everything yeah I mean we haven't really talked about De Niro obviously we've like mentioned it in parts but like it is interesting that he is obviously the biggest star in this movie but he doesn't really come alive until this kind of this final stretch where he becomes almost the antagonist of mm-hmm. like everything that's going on where like in the early days he is definitely like you're more focused on Henry you're more focused on Tommy mm-hmm. and De Niro's just kind of like almost like the elder statesman actor yeah he, like, he's just it feels like he's just mediating stuff He he's the cool head he's the one that's like hey just cut it out kind of thing even if he does have like the explosive moments of you know the murders and everything it does feel like he's kind of just chilling for most of the movie, and then suddenly his emotional stuff kicks in. Yeah, and I mean, like his his kind of final scene in the movie where they have the sit down conversation at the bar is really really good. But like, it's kind of like this: the scene where he breaks the phone booth, and that scene in the in the like restaurant are like the two big showcases for him, really, in terms of what he's doing. And then I guess on the side to note to that, like Paul Savino is Paulie, like obviously. Again, another role where it's like he's obviously a huge, huge presence across the entire movie. But he's like, great, like, and they even introduce him as like you know he didn't move fast because he didn't need to, and he's just kind of like silently judging them all throughout the whole movie, and then like so much hinges on him and like his disapproval of what Henry does, and like you know he gives him that last three grand, and there's like yeah, but you're fucked now, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, a really so, big presence. So- so we're in in the kind of like final direction movie, which is like they jump ahead again. Henry is now like just basically functioning on cocaine. <laughs> he has his like new mistress who's like cutting the drugs up for him, and like you've got the line in the dialogue where it's like she's using way more than she should, but also we're making so much money that no one particularly cares. Yeah. And then in the course of like making a drug deal, the FBI bust in, and. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic like final day of him like driving around organizing how he's going to do all of this stuff like, yeah. and he's like constantly looking up and seeing the helicopters, the helicopters following him. Yeah. 
And it almost feels like this could have just been a movie, you know, like his his twenty four hours could have just been a whole movie, but like you know, there's so much else good stuff going on as well. Well, the thing is, like, and you love like he puts the bag in like the thing, and like the entire day he's more stressed out about like making the cooking. Sauce. <laughs> the cooking's good, and his like <laughs> his, his brother in law brother is like supposed to be like stirring the pot. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Corrigan just rolling through in the last few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, he and just then, vanishes. And, like you, at the beginning, when you see like his young life, and like you see his brothers in a wheelchair, and it's like mentioned as one of the reasons his dad is angry, and then just he picks him up from the hospital, and like the doctor's like, "Dude, I need to check you out." Like, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just like going into incredible, incredibly elaborate detail about the source and like what he's gonna do, and like every minute of the day is planned, and like half of it is and then I need to tend to the meat and then I need to come back to this and it's like oh no so I'll go over to Sharon's I'll come back I'll do the sauce some more and then I'll head out to the drugs and sell the guns and yeah yeah and then obviously the FBI come in and Karen very smartly yep. flushes the the cocaine down the toilet yeah which, which which leads to I think I want to call it my favorite scene between Red the, Otter they're and just and... desperate hug on the floor as they've lost everything yeah yeah, like, it's just it's just like the the way that scene goes, where it's like you understand completely why she did it, but also like that was all of their like capital yeah. they had in the world because the FBI is going to take everything from them. And I just think it's that thing where it's like if he, if not for the fact this is all he had left in the world and he'd pinned everything on it, he would know she was right. And yet, this is he he, you know, you meet these people who like you know. They're pinning everything on something that's quite a dumb thing to plan on, and it just it just disintegrates in front of him, and like they are, you know, he's yelling at her, and all she can keep saying is, "Yes, they definitely would have found it. They were searching our whole house," and just yeah, they just break down, and it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, and then and then as as we've alluded to, you get the kind of the two kind of breakdown scenes between him and Paulie and him and Jimmy where Paulie's just like I hate that you did drugs like mm-hmm. the drugs are the one thing that you weren't supposed to do here is not even like a little over three grand like yeah. don't come back here anymore you've, yeah. you've betrayed you've and betrayed he's cooking when he says like he's just casually cooking meat while he says this as well is excellent yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know you looked me in the eyes and you you lied to me like fuck you basically like here's yeah. his three grand for your loyalty over the years but off you fuck um yeah and then and then he meets jimmy to see like what jimmy wants and then jimmy's like oh why don't you come help me down in florida to like deal with someone and like he realizes because jimmy's never asked him to kill anyone before it's like okay he's gonna he's gonna have me and karen killed yeah the tension of like even meeting him in public and like he's been paranoid for the whole drug bit but like you know he talked earlier about like when karen finds out about the first mistress and she points the gun right at his face and he's like, I have to worry enough about just being murdered on the street. I don't need this. And it's like, it's only heightened at this point. And even his friends, like, he has no protection anymore. Like, Paulie's turned his back on him. Jimmy is, you know, there's increasing tension there. And, like, yeah, that, like, he, he has to turn up early to make sure that Jimmy is hasn't set him up and like they have to sit by a window and and all of this and like the scene where karen almost gets killed is like incredibly dark as jimmy's just like no no go down that dark alley with those weird large men um yeah and then off he goes to become an informant and he gets paulie and jimmy arrested and we said as earlier on like where he just 
he's in the in the stand and then just like turns to the camera and gives that like final speech to camera. It's so strange to deploy that for the first time so late. And I kind of is it more powerful? Would it have been cool if he'd done that throughout the movie, like Jordan does in Wolf of Wall Street, if like you know, while they're murdering a guy, the radio is just monologuing to camera in the foreground. I don't know, but it is certainly jarring when it happens. And, like, it, it's funny when they're, like, going over the deeds. And, like, the agent is like, I don't give a shit about you, Karen. But, like, if it makes him go, then yes, fine, you can go. She's like, but what if my parents take ill? It's like, okay, what if you get murdered on the street? I think the reason he deploys it so late is the like, implication that, like, the movie is being told almost as, like, the witness stand right, right, testimony. Right, right. And so, like, we're now at present day, even though we're not, because, like, we do get that section of movie where he's, like, in witness protection and then obviously the contextualization of what the last ten years have been. Yeah, I took it that way, that, like, essentially his testimony was the movie and, and like, he finishes up. But, but he's kind of gotten the best possible outcome. He's alive, he's protected, he's still alive to this day. They give him a nice little white picket fence house and he's just like, I hate it because I'm not important. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the movie ends on that line where I'm an average nobody, I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. And it's like, it, that is the worst thing for him. And yeah. you can tell it from the way Henry Hill is, as we said, where like yeah. he makes his entire life as being the Goodfellas guy. Like, I'm the guy this exactly. is based on. It's reignited his fame. Like, you know, he was famous in a small circle as it were. Like, he was powerful. And then all of that went to shit, and now it's like, oh, fuck, some name value. Like, he grew up in a poor, large family in a broke neighbourhood, and he just, you know, he just wanted to be special. And, and, and that is the fundamental, that's his broken part, I suppose. And I guess that's, you know, that's why he revels in the mistresses and, and, the, and the money, is he just wants to be desired and to be important and to be treated well and everything. And it just all went away from him, and... Arbed and the cast of Community become just regular schnooks again. Um, <laughs> I love that it's the exact same phrasing as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, that's the thing. It's like this movie obviously has such a long tail in terms of it, and it is. I don't want to say like people think it's better than The Godfather because obviously The Godfather is a whole other thing, but it does feel like this movie is explicitly a counterpoint to The Godfather. I think it's better than The Godfather, personally. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, but The Godfather is just one of those movies where, like, and I think it's even what, um, what, it's what David Chase says where he uh, watches, or David Chase, uh, Soprano says, where he watches The Goodfellas, and he's like, The Godfather is operatic yeah. and huge, and feels almost detached from, like, real-world people. It's, like, it's, it's a is... big, sprawling, romantic, myth, mythologized version of the mafia, and Goodfellas felt like, this is what it's really like, kind of thing. And yeah, I, this, I, it is it is regular guys who are angry and petty in different ways. It isn't this this family tragedy epic that spans generations and epics. It's just a bunch of guys who liked having money, liked having girls on their arms, uh-huh. who upheld some level of code to protect people that they liked, which is why they're getting yeah. involved in stuff like trade unions and stuff like that. It's because, like, well, most of the people who work the trade unions are Italian or Irish, and mm-hmm. so therefore there are people and we need to protect them because... Exactly, yeah. And that's the stuff that really fascinates me more than, I guess, more than the personal life. I mean, the personal stories, are they're interesting, but the part that really actually fascinates me is, like, the inner workings of the mafia and, like, the weird dogma of, like, you know, we are 100% cool with murder, we are not cool with drugs, like... 
you can I mean he kind of gets into it in The Departed like there's guys you can hit and guys you can't hit that's almost a guy you can't hit yeah all of that stuff I think is really really interesting and like I like talking about it like this like and and I, I guess the bullet points of the movie like fully on board with love it all very well done but it's just the, the experience of watching it I do my interest starts to wane a little bit in the sort of back half until it really picks back up again but you know I think overall I think it... obviously an excellent tale across many years with so many characters and and such an ensemble like that um, yeah i mean it is an overwhelming movie in some ways in terms of like how it is where like it i think it realizes that it does need to kind of like slow down at some point but you're kind of like you're so on board of how quick it's going up to that point that like you kind of wish it had the ability to keep that, that and that might be where going. it loses me is when it does slow down because i feel it kind of slams it I don't know if it slams into a brick wall when they go to prison, but I feel it's it it's a mile a minute up until then, and then it kind of waxes and wanes from there. And there's, yeah. I'm not saying I hate everything that happens after they go to prison, obviously, but it's just that that is just the point where I start to be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, one thing to note, obviously, this is one of the like most famous soundtracks to yeah. ever be in a movie. <laughs> like, I I think if this movie has taken Layla. You cannot hear Layla now and not think of this movie. Like it's just, yeah, just an absolutely incredible genre-defining soundtrack in in so many different ways. Shout out to Film Shoemaker who obviously does all of Scorsese's movies. But just what I love is about their collaboration is like even when people are coming out and saying that Scorsese makes um, very masculine movies, it's important to remember that there is a woman who is behind the editing room and making a lot of these choices and stuff like that. And I do think it gives a like an edge to it that kind of like helps not not soften it but like there is a perspective of femininity in all of Scorsese's movies that really does help level it out even when these movies are about hyper masculinity and and kind of hiding behind all of that stuff and then just I, again the two things that I think both I've seen the Sopranos and you have it but the Sopranos <laughs> is so obviously indebted to this movie in terms of it kind of takes the, the Sopranos is less interested in the inner workings of mafia and is more interested in the psychology and the psychosis behind the people who would do this based on the fact that like the lead character is a a mafia guy who's in therapy and so mm. like much more interested in the realistic people but obviously it's it's such a huge seminal piece of work with things on its mind and and it's like if almost like if david lynch had made this movie I guess is is the best way to describe the Sopranos in some ways, where like there are whole episodes of the Sopranos that are just like Tony's having a dream, and you've got to just kind of like piece together yeah. the logic of of how it all works. Um, I mean, you know, obviously that many people can't be wrong. I'm not saying Sopranos. I mean, I, it's just one of those works that to me is basically just it's essentially off limits because of how huge and revered it is, and how much of it there is, and how it's sort of passed me by, and it's like. It, it's like that and Mad Men and kind of the West Wing for as much as I love Aaron Sorkin I kind of just don't even want to even dip my toe into that and The Wire almost as well like, these are such like landmark shows there's so much of it they're so incredibly revered and I'm just like almost scared of them um. yeah I, I think it's almost like The Sopranos and The Wire are probably equally yeah. daunting at this point because they're just less available yeah. Than a bunch of other of those like big shows as well, where it's like, well, I have to, I have to track it down, and people talk about it like it's the next great American novel, yeah. and that feels like homework. If only, well, there's that aspect too. I kind of resent having to tick off these like 
yeah, they make these like films you should see before you die and sem- you know must see TV and it's like I, I don't want to do admin, but yeah, if only HBO Max were available outside of America. <laughs> I do exactly. actually own all of The Wire and all of the, I think all of The West Wing, but I just they just sit there and glare at me and I'm like no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, I'm very excited for this this many scenes of New York movie. I want to see what it's like to to revisit this world, but yeah, yeah, like, it's cool obviously is, yeah. is the like if we're not including the kind of the two big Scorsese movies that are so obviously indebted to the style and the the kind of thought processes in Wolf of Wall Street and The Irishman, then The Sopranos is obviously the the great child of of the good of Goodfellas. And then and then we just will very briefly touch on community episode that is like <laughs> just because the thing that's so interesting about the Goodfellas episode of Community is it's their first huge parody where, I was like, going to say entire... is, it, is this the first one because it's series one when most of aside from Paintball which I guess is the next one they did most of the like big talked about episodes come from season two and season three and then they're still doing them later on but they just they don't have that level of, of reverence and it's like is this the first time they went fully special episode feature episodes genre parody episode whereas before it was just mostly a not a generic sitcom there was always something a bit special about it but playing by the rules and then suddenly you have a full-on commitment to you know the entire middle portion is just the goodfellas but with chicken fingers like (laughs) yeah exactly like so i think they do obviously do jokes earlier on where it's like they do the ghost episode they do or i think the ghost episode it's like there's a running plot line a joke when an episode where it's like no ghosting yeah, and yeah, like yeah. they have these these movie references, but the Goodfellas episode really is the first time where they go like, let's not even hide it. Yeah, and this then, entire yeah, episode, and that we, like we, leads to paintball and leads to my dinner with Andre and you know more paintball and and the claymation. You know, it becomes a show known for this kind of stuff, and like it wasn't as funny as I remember it being, and I guess that's part of it being episode uh, season one. But just, it was really interesting to see it and, and think of it as the genesis of that. Like, what if we just fucked around and did an entire, like, special episode kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. Like, is it just because it's, like, it's the 20th anniversary of The Goodfellas that year? Because, like, Maybe. It's, it's it's out in 2010. I, but it's, I remember watching at the time, and, what, so it's 2010. I don't, I think I'm, like, so I'm, like, 18 years old. I've not seen Goodfellas at <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and so when I watch it, I'm just like, so it's just a mafia movie, like right. But like that's the thing, the language is every, and that's the thing. If you come to any of these kind of movies after the fact, they kind of are just never going to be as impactful because like you've seen it in The Simpsons, you've seen it in you know any other comedy, you've seen it in Family Guy, you've seen it Community. Like it becomes part of the lexicon. It's like yeah, but this is where it came from. You don't you have to understand the like the impact this had on first viewing and everything. But yeah, yeah, like I, it's good. It just it it's kind of got some slower like, and maybe it's I've seen it many times. I don't know, but yeah, I, mean, I did I, watch I mean, it. And I was I like, think, ah, it's kind of funny, but <laughs> I think it is interesting where like the four movies that we're discussing at the top of this mini series are kind of mm. such huge template movies yeah. for different things, and like, and where you have to kind of discuss the impact on culture that these four movies had, and like how 
all of them either have direct parodies or there are pieces of media that are basically just like, well, what if we made this into a TV show or what if we made this into a, a slightly worse movie to kind of like give a hint of where we're going for these first four. <laughs> but it is crazy to think that like, in a way we haven't actually touched on anything so far in our discussion of these movies where it's like, this is a template. This is a genre that has continued for 30 years. And like, if you do anything in this world now, you're doing, you're doing a good fellas rip or in the case of the episode we're doing next week, like you're doing Silence of the Lambs or something. <gasps> Spoilers. Yes. <laughs> that is next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, that's, but that's the thing is like, we are, we are touching now on, we are at a point in history where these movies have now had so long to percolate and become part of the culture that like, yeah. they are indelible. And like, I know, we've, we've kind of steered away from monolithic movies or movies mm. where it's like, what else is there to say? <laughs> and and like and I think I mean we we have not supplied anything here I think that has never been said in Goodfellas. Come on, two just... white guys talking about the Goodfellas for an hour. This is groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I think, but it's just like if we're talking about nineties movies, it kind of has to be touched upon. And the, mm. the stuff that we're going to be more interested in talking about is going like, well, what is the impact of this movie? How yeah. did it change how things work? And it's like it, it kind of makes the mob movie moot. And it, in a lot of ways. Yeah, kind of. And I should actually say, I generally am not really that into gangster movies, mob movies, as a rule. And this is one of the ones that I'm like, yeah, this is obviously good. And it's like, did this just shut down the game on everything else? And like, once you've seen this, like, what's even the point in watching some of the other ones? Um, well, I mean, I, obviously the other counterpoint to that is the fact that this movie does come out the same year as Godfather Part 3. Which, it's not good. It's a, it's a famously <laughs> compromised movie. Yeah, yeah. He was broke. And, <laughs> and it's just it's just one of those interesting things where it's just like you have the progenitor of this genre, the the original movie to come out and sit like The Godfather Part Two is the original movie to come out with a two in its title for God's sakes. Like it is just a landmark piece of cinema, and you, what you have in here is Scorsese, who whilst is a contemporary of Francis Ford Coppola, it does feel like he has more youthful energy and more artistic staying power than Coppola does because obviously Coppola kind of stalls out now in the early 90s doesn't he Dracula is kind of his last good movie <laughs> which is which is two years from now yeah <laughs> oh man but, but yeah like it's an interesting period of cinema and as you said like we I have no cultural knowledge of this because I wasn't even fucking born when this movie releases <laughs> yeah I mean like, I'm, I'm one and a half like I don't None of these, well, very few of these movies are going to be first run for me, but it's just like, you know, this is what was talked about and on television and around uh, as I'm starting to become aware of big movies kind of thing. So I have slightly more cultural cachet with this perhaps than you, but yeah, it's, it is interesting that like now I actually look at the list, seeing particularly these first four are incredibly iconic in different genres and uh, as you said next week our episode will be Silence of the Lambs yes so so Matthew as yeah. we sign off as always we sign off <laughs> to ask you will there be movies there'll be one really good movie that everyone will rip off and then like just kind of won't be these for a while again yeah. you're making me sad now like at the death of cinema like, like, <laughs> bye everyone <it's> <laughs>